All right. It was a tight turnaround, but made it. <laughs> the video is not long enough. <laughs> Some of you may wonder, why do we do those videos before the message? Why, you know, it's, well, it's kind of helped set the stage, but it's also, you know, literally just set the stage, okay? It's to give us this time to, to change things up here, get ready for the message. Um, glad you're here today, and uh, it is our five-year anniversary, so that's a special day. For those of you that I haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is John, and I am the pastor here. And uh, we'd love to get a little light on them if we could get a little light on them. Shed a little light on the subject. Hey, there you go. Now I can see your beautiful faces. It is, I don't want to talk to a dark room. Just don't. Just don't want to speak into the, into the darkness. I want to see your faces. So uh, it is a good day. It's a special day for us. Um, and we are also in the middle of something that we love doing as a church. We'll do a teaching series where we teach on Sunday, and then our groups during the week are doing a sermon-based study, all of them. Um, so you're taking what we talk about here, and you're digging in deeper during the week and understanding how to apply it and discuss it, because uh, you may come out of here with questions or figuring out how to actually do it in your life. And so that's what groups are designed for. If you're not in a group yet, now would be the time to do that. We're just a few weeks into the series, plenty of time to catch up, and um, we're learning from the Sermon on the Mount. So if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 5. That's where we are working through the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, uh, at least in the Gospel of Matthew. That's where it's located. And uh, Jesus has a really uh, important reason for doing this teaching that he does, and it is arguably the greatest sermon ever preached. And uh, so he has just introduced this idea. He's early on in his ministry, and he's just introduced this idea to his followers, the people who are just starting to, to catch on with him, uh, of this thing called the kingdom. He says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he knows that things are going to be changing. And he has to get them prepared for that change. Understand how to live now, but also to understand what's coming. And so he does this sermon where he is talking about, last week he talked about the law. Okay, He begins with some uh, kind of broad statements of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the peacemakers. And he's trying to flip their understanding of religion and faith and power and, and success and all of that on its head. And uh, they were looking at their religious leaders being like, well, wait a minute. He said, blessed are the meek. And I'm looking at these people that I've been following my whole life. And I'm not sure I would use that word for them. <laughs> blessed are the peacemakers. And they're looking at the Pharisees and they're like, hey, they're not really making a lot of peace around here. And they're realizing that what they've been instructed in, now the letter of it is, there's nothing wrong with the letter of it, but the way that it's been demonstrated, the way that it's been lived out in front of them has not been correct. And so in fact, last week he talked about the law. Okay, these are Jews and they are under something called the law. And that was a whole understanding of how they were to relate to God. It was, there was a system of sacrifices. There were things that they could eat and couldn't eat. There were festivals and feasts they had to observe. There were all kinds of rules, okay? Last week, Jesus said that until he said, don't think that I came to abolish the law or to cast the law aside. I came to fulfill the law. He said, until heaven and earth pass away, not the least jot or tittle from the law will pass away until all is fulfilled, and we talked last week about how to understand that statement. What does he mean that the law won't pass away? What does it mean that he fulfilled the law? And uh, I want to really want to encourage you to go back and, and watch the message, watch actually the message from last week, because we did a visual that I heard from a ton of people this week was really helpful for them in understanding how this works, okay? And I'll just give you a rundown without it actually up here. 
uh, I drew a bucket, and then we drew rocks inside of the bucket. And the rocks were, the bucket was righteousness, being right before God. The, the rocks were the laws that he gave him, concrete form of, of himself. And he said, you know, you have to tithe, and you have to keep the Sabbath, and you can't eat this, and you can't eat that, and you have to observe this feast and this festival, and you have to make these sacrifices. And all those were rocks in the bucket. The problem is, that there's gaps in space in between those rocks. There's no way that the rocks could actually fill the bucket full. And so, however, each of those rocks tells us and teaches us something about God and his nature and his character and his desire for our life. So what Jesus did was he came and he fulfilled the law, almost like pouring water into the bucket. And, and he, he filled all of the gaps and the spaces between the rocks. And when he did that, all the rocks dissolved, Okay. Because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, his death and his resurrection, we are no longer under the law. That's not how we're made right in front of God anymore. We are made right in front of God through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. So we put our faith in him for salvation to do for us, to fill the bucket that we couldn't possibly fill. We put our faith in him for salvation, believe that he died and he rose again for our sins and accept salvation. And then our righteousness comes through him, not through keeping rules. But what Jesus did is he didn't just throw everything away and start fresh. He took what I, the, the, the analogy or the, the picture was that the rocks dissolved into this new liquid that was that is Christ. So the elements of the rocks, the minerals, if you think of like iron or calcium or whatever else, those elements are still within Christ. They just don't have the form of the law that they once had. So our job is to abide in and follow Christ because he fulfills and embodies the law. So the principles of the law don't pass away. They're there for a reason. But we find them fulfilled in Christ, and we abide in Christ and follow the Spirit in order to do it. So that's like a quick synopsis. It'll be more helpful if you actually have the visual, so I would encourage you to check that out. But he finishes his conversation with um, these people who, by the way, it's important to say, are still under the law. He hasn't died on the cross yet. He hasn't risen again. He is speaking to people who are under the law which is why he continues to encourage them to keep it. But he says that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, then you can by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And they would have been like, what? (laughs) These are the most righteous people we know. They keep all of the rules. Well, the problem is that they are not the most righteous people that they know. And so Jesus is going to use the next bit of his message to help them understand what he means by that. What is, how could their righteousness surpass that of the Pharisees? And that's what we're going to be getting into today. But for them, that would have seemed like a forest. You know, you look at a forest and you get so intimidated, right? You look at it, it's like the old phrase, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. But if you just look at the whole elephant, right? If you just look at the whole elephant, it's, in, it's completely overwhelming, it's too big. It feels too big. And, and, and saying that your righteousness has to surpass that of the Pharisees probably felt too big for them, too much to accomplish, too high a bar. You'd be easily intimidated by stuff like that. I find myself intimidated by stuff like that all the time. And not just righteousness, like a lot of things, you know? I'm intimidated by my, my, I'm intimidated by my, my 11-year-old. Is he 12? Yeah. You know what? I'm intimidated by being a parent. Um, I'm always afraid I'm going to mess up their ages. <laughs> they, they, listen, 
if we could have just figured out a way for them all to be born on the same day of the year. Like if it had all been March 13th, if they'd all been born on March 13th, they would all, their ages would all change at the same time and I would always know the intervals. But they, they did it, they spread it out. I don't know, anyway. Anyway, they're changing, it's weird. I can't keep track. But okay, so he's 12. That's the, the point, that's not the point. He's 12, all right? I'm intimidated by my 12-year-old because he can solve a Rubik's Cube in two and a half minutes. Which I look at a Rubik's... One minute. Okay, he's back there. He corrected me. He's getting faster. And and I've never solved a Rubik's Cube in my entire life without watching a video. I did that once. Um, uh, I, I actually, uh, Carol and Mike, I did it at your house. I don't know if you ever noticed. But we, like, house-sitted one night for you, and I saw a Rubik's Cube, and I went online, and I found all the instructions, and I followed all the instructions, and it was done uh, sitting on the coffee table. But anyway. Um, <laughs> But I just can't do it. He sits down and he's flipping. Have you ever seen like a speed cuber or whatever? I mean, he's flipping the, the Rubik's Cube with multiple fingers and it's going all different places. I don't even know what's going on. And I look at him and solve that thing and I'm like, I can never do that. Like, I can never do that. Because it's too big, it feels too big, it's too massive and wide and too big a task. But the truth is, he just, he's learned, he's learned, he's learned, he's practiced, he's practiced, he's practiced, and he's gotten better and better and better, and now he can do it like, like lightning. And by the way, he finishes it, he'll, he does it every night when I come to put him in bed. Every night, he's sitting in his bed with his Rubik's Cube, and I walk in the door, and he's flicking that thing around. He, has, he bought like a special Rubik's Cube that's faster, too. He's like, and then all of a sudden, he finishes it, he drops it, and then he just looks at me. Like, what? <laughs> it's like, okay, all right. <laughs> I paid for your dinner. Let's not get let's not get out of here. I was busy working while you were busy working on Rubik's Cubes. But the point is, there are things like that that seem too big and too daunting to accomplish. But you can, but it takes it takes a little bit of work, a little bit of effort, a little bit of understanding, and a little bit of practice. And so they need to keep the law. But we, we don't. It's a different thing for us. So we're going to talk about what it means for them. We'll talk about what it means for us as well, okay? But let's get into our, our passage for the week. He's going to explain and give some examples. And this will, this will you know, span over the next couple weeks for us, this segment. Um, but Matthew chapter 5, we're at verse 21. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. Now, this is an old command, okay? This is from the, from the law. You're familiar with this? Thou shalt not kill, right? Now, when he says, um, do not murder, I, I do want to be clear about this. He's just referencing back to uh, the command and then the way they would have applied that and said you'd be in danger of the judgment, okay? Um, but I, I do want to point out that when he says murder, he's talking about killing someone with malicious intent, all right. And I do feel this is important to point out because some of you have may have found yourself in positions where you had to take someone else's life, but it was not done with malicious intent. Maybe you were in the military. Maybe you were defending yourself in some way or whatever. When Jesus says murder, he's talking about someone who with malicious intent kills someone else. And I know that if you've ever been in a situation other than that, it's easy to carry shame or guilt or other things with you, and it's a very difficult thing to deal with. But I just want you to know that that is not what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about with ill intent, malicious intent, killing someone else. All right, so that's a pretty, pretty straightforward command, right? They would all have been familiar with it. But verse 22, But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. 
And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. You're like, whoa, I, I thought this was going to make it easier. <laughs> I thought we were going to lower the bar, and that's how we were going to surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees. No, 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 no. We're actually going to raise the bar. We're going to raise the bar in the way that they don't expect. Because Jesus is getting them not to the letter of the law, but to the spirit of the law. That the way that their righteousness can surpass that of the Pharisees is by simply understanding the reason God gave the law in the first place and living out the reason rather than just the law. It's not just doing what, it's doing why, understanding why. And so a couple of things just for uh, details so we understand what Jesus is saying. He says, if you're angry with someone without a cause, he, he puts that, that modifier on it, without a cause. Being angry isn't necessarily sinful, but being angry at someone without cause is. He said, if you call someone raka, which is an Aramaic word, and that's not a word we use anymore, obviously, but it means uh, empty-headed or worthless, okay? So if you call someone empty-headed, and then he says, uh, whoever says, you fool, which is a Greek word, and is a synonym of rakah. They're, the, they're basically the same thing, one in Aramaic and one in Greek. And to, to be a fool, obviously we know what that means. Uh, it means to be dull or without wisdom or lacking understanding or worthless. And Jesus, it's interesting as he does it, that he escalates the punishment or the court that you would go in front of so he says, uh, you'd be in danger of the judgment, which would have referenced just an everyday court, like civil court you might think of in our society. You could take people to civil court, said, yeah, if you're angry with someone without a reason, then you're in danger of the judgment. If you say raka to someone, then you're in danger of the council. He uses the word Sanhedrin. That's the Jewish ruling council. It's like the Supreme Court of their area. And then he says, and if you say to someone, you fool, you're in danger of hellfire. The word he uses is Gehenna. Gehenna was a, a word they would use as an understanding of hell. It referenced a real place, actually, in Jerusalem. Outside of Jerusalem, there was a place called Gehenna. It was in the Valley of Hinnom, um, and it was the dump. It was the garbage dump for Jerusalem, and they would constantly be burning trash and animals and other things in the dump. It was the worst possible place you could go. They were just thinking, like, what is the worst possible place on planet Earth? It was Gehenna. And before, uh, before Gehenna was a trash dump, it was in the Valley of Hinnom, it's where people would go and make sacrifices to the god Molech, and often child sacrifices. And so when they thought about that area, it was just pure evil, death, filth, fire. It was the worst they could think of. And so that would represent God's judgment. And so he increases the judgment, like civil court, supreme court, God's judgment, and yet the offense doesn't change. To be angry without cause, to call someone a fool, or to call someone a fool. <laughs> Jesus is saying it's all the same. See, the problem, it's the same problem with calling someone a fool, worthless, empty-headed, is the same problem with murdering someone. And he wants to get them to the, to the essence of this so they understand how to live out the law because they have to follow the law, and also so we can understand how we walk in faithfulness and in grace. Now, they would have looked at the Pharisees and been like, well, the Pharisees keep the law. 
because the, they've never murdered anyone, right? If, so murder is the bar. They've never done that. But surely the Pharisees had been angry at someone without cause. Surely the, the Pharisees had called someone rakha, had called someone fool. And so they had violated the law, even though they hadn't violated the letter of it. Keeping the letter of the law doesn't make you good enough. Doesn't make you good enough to earn righteousness. God doesn't take pictures. He takes MRIs. He sees past the outside. He sees past our actions, and he sees to our hearts. And that's what Jesus is primarily concerned with here. Well, what do we learn? We look at it, what do we learn? Well, the first lesson we can take from this, I hope it goes without saying, um, don't murder anyone. Okay? <laughs> I know that's like baseline. We already know that one from the law. That's like low bar. That's low bar. Don't do that, obviously. But the deeper lesson that we have to learn is that we should be people who value and love other people. Because at the heart of the problem here, the heart of calling someone a fool, the heart of calling, saying raka to someone, is that you are devaluing them as a person. And that's at the heart of murder as well. That, that you are devaluing them as a person and therefore willing to take their life because you don't think they deserve to live anymore. And so Jesus, that is what needs to change in us. And to be clear, Jesus is not telling us today how to be saved, all right? It's not like if you tell, call someone a fool that you're going to hell. That's not the way it works. Our salvation was secured by Jesus on the cross, his death and resurrection. We put our faith in him, and we, he imputes his righteousness to us. But now, as we walk through life, we have a decision on whether we're going to be in fellowship with him and whether we're going to be in fellowship with each other or whether we're just going to go back to living the way everyone else does. And if we want to be in fellowship with him and if we want to be in fellowship with each other, then we need to love and care for and value everyone around us in the same way we do ourselves. And that is the heart that Jesus is trying to get them back to. And he's saying to them, without saying it, that if you get this right, your righteousness will surpass that of the Pharisees. Obviously, don't murder anyone. But if you would love and value and not treat people and mistreat people around you, then you would surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees. The heart of the law, the character of God. And so as we look at that and we hear that from Jesus, then I think we all have to ask the question, do we do it? Is there anyone in your life, is there anyone in my life that we have devalued, mistreated? Whether that's to their face or whether it's in our own mind and heart. Have we taken anyone in our life and as we think about their value, their worth and versus ours, and we put ourselves above them, we put them below ourselves. Whether that's happened in our heart or in our mind or whether it's actually come out of our mouth. And listen, this is easier to do than it's ever been to do. It used to be for them, they would actually have to look someone in the face and say, I'm, not, I'm trying not to look at anyone. You fool. <laughs> look at a chair. You, know, you fool. But today we can hide behind a screen name or an avatar. And we can say lots of things to lots of people or about lots of people, and think that it, we remain anonymous. But it doesn't matter if nobody ever, ever knows that that post came from you or that comment came from you, okay? Because God sees past it. 
And even if no human knows that you had that thought or that you said that thing, God sees directly to your heart. And those kinds of attitudes will obviously break our relationship and fellowship with each other, but they will also break our relationship, not break our relationship, I shouldn't say that, affect our relationship, damage our relationship with God. The problems we have with other people create problems with us and God. We talked a good bit about that last week. It's a lot easier to do. And so these are things that we need to resolve. These issues that we have with each other. The solution to this, Jesus goes on and he gives it. He says in verse 23, Therefore, therefore, this is a dependent phrase here. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and he's talking about the altar in Jerusalem. Right? If you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you. He's flipped it. It's going the other way now. Your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Why does he flip to the opposite here? I thought that was, that was a little weird um, reading it. I would think he would say, if you go to the altar and you realize you have something against your brother. He says, if you go to the altar and you realize that your brother has something against you, that there's a, there's a conflict that they have against you. And I think that's because this is the weaker argument. So if the weaker argument is true, then the stronger argument is true. If you go to the, if you go to the altar and you realize, wow, that person has a problem with me, real or not, baits in reality or not, your fault or not, that person has a problem with me. If there's a rift between you and you didn't even cause it, maybe they cause it, if they have a problem with you, then leave your gift at the altar and go and be reconciled before you offer it. And so if that's true, then certainly if you have a problem with someone else, that is, that's true as well. And by the way, this has been a big deal. But a big deal because um, the, Jesus is talking about giving your gift at the altar. He would have been talking about the altar in Jerusalem. Well, he's talking to people who are in Galilee. They're not in the same state. <laughs> okay, Galilee, uh, geographically, you had Galilee, and then you had Samaria, and then you had Judea. And Judea was where Jerusalem was. And so people didn't just go to Jerusalem on a Wednesday because they felt like it. It was a journey. And so they would have been leaving town maybe twice a year, maybe once a year, they would go to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices. And Jesus is saying, this is such a big deal that if you get all the way down to Jerusalem and you get to the altar and you realize that someone has something against you, you leave there and you go back home and you saw that you reconcile it first. This really matters. Straighten things out quickly. Jesus has a consistent message in Scripture, and you're going to talk more about this in your group this week too, that when there's a problem between you and another person, there's a problem between you and God. They go together. Does the sacrifice bring peace if your heart is at war? You can be saved and hate your brother, but you cannot be in fellowship with God and hate your brother. You can't be in fellowship with him. You know, you almost get the idea that loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving, loving your neighbor as yourself are intertwined because they are. When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, he said, the first is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And when he said first and second, he didn't mean in a list first and second primary, secondary. He meant first and second equal to each other. They are intertwined. You can't do one without the other. 
And so when we're devaluing, mistreating someone, either in our mind or out loud, then we are creating a problem between us and God because we are hating someone who he created. And so we have to solve these issues and solve them quickly. He gives another example in verse 25. He says, agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with him. And that's, by the way, would be while you're on the way to court. You're going to court to have this thing mediated while you're on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. So we need to straighten these things out as quickly as we can. Somebody that you have a problem with, somebody that you know has a problem with you, you need to straighten them out. The disconnects in our relationships with other people create disconnects with God. Do you have a problem with someone, a person, or maybe an entire group of people? Or do you know someone who has a problem with you? You need to fix it now. Now. Today. Not to wait. Not to put it off. Stop putting it off. Don't pretend it's not there. Deal with it today if we want to be in fellowship with God. All right, so Jesus shows them with this example. Here's what I'm talking about. Here's how your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees. You get the heart right. You get the spirit right. And then the law will, is actually just will happen. Obviously, if you're loving your neighbor, loving your brother, loving your sister, you're not going to murder them. <laughs> right? So it's a bigger picture thing. It's a higher bar. Okay. And then he goes on to another example. Verse 27. Same principle applied to a different rule. Verse 27. You've heard it said, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. Again, this is straightforward, but they understood that to be the physical act. And I am going to speak in relative code today because we are in mixed company, okay? But they were talking about the physical act. You shall not commit adultery. Verse 28. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I think that it's interesting that both of these things that Jesus talks about with examples are things that pop up, okay? Temptations that pop up. They jump on us. Anger jumps on us, right? That's, an, that's a real emotion, a thing that comes, comes uh, uh, up in our, our mind and our heart. Lust is the same thing. It pops up. It's like it's not there, and then all of a sudden it's there, right? And the question is, we, we may, not, may or may not be able to control that, but the question is, what do we do with it when it happens? What is our mentality? Because a, a law-based mentality would be, well, okay, so I just, it's, it's fine as long as I just don't break the commandment. The commandment says not to commit adultery. So as long as I don't do that, that physical thing, then whatever else, you know, we can work on. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. The bar is higher than that. That if you even look at someone lustfully, and this would indicate intent or entertaining the thought, you even look at someone lustfully, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. 
And yes, he talks, he's talking about men, but it certainly does not just apply to men. It applies to all of us. And unfortunately, we live in a society where those kinds of temptations are in front, in front of us like they never have before. I mean, it is constant bombardment with this kind of temptation. It's everywhere. It's not just a physical person anymore. You think about their society and what they were dealing with, like you would have to see a person. That's what you had, right? That's what, where that temptation would pop up. But in today's society, it's not just a physical person anymore. It's, a, it's an actor or an actress. It's a JPEG. It's an MP4. It's on our TVs. It's on our computers. It's on our phones. It is with us at all times. And that temptation can come up at any time. Entertaining these lustful uh, temptations that pop up are just a click away from us. Always. Always. And so removal from that temptation is harder than it's ever been before. It used to be, okay, so I won't watch that show. I won't buy that magazine. I won't go to that. But, but now it's, it's inescapable. It's in front of us all the time when we don't even want it. And bam, the temptation is right there in front of us. And the question is, what do we do with it? You say, well, I would never act on it. I would never break that law. And Jesus say, no, 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 no. The bar for this is higher than that. If you want to be in fellowship with God and in fellowship with other people, it's not just about not going and doing the thing. It's about what the desire that's right here and the thoughts that are happening right here. Our, our society, the entertainment society that we live in, has successfully disembodied lust, which is a fairly recent thing. And now it's anonymous. It feels, it seems like it's anonymous. Like that's not a real person. It's just an image. And so now we don't attach a life to that person or a story to that person, even in the way that you would when it's a physical person in front of you. Very cleverly done, by the way, and slipped in everywhere. I mean, it's not just a movie or a, or a you know, a crude TV show or a particular website. It's everywhere. It's commercials. It's what's being sold to us. It's what's being marketed to us. It's in front of us all the time. And with all of that just being inundated with that kind of temptation and messaging, we have to be spiritual ninjas at dealing with that temptation and understanding how to think about it, what to do with it. And listen, in, in Christians, in our culture, want to argue and fight about a lot of external social issues and extremes and this and that and what's happening here and what's happening there. But it is the private quiet of our own thoughts where Christians are really losing. We, we want to shout and we want to scream about this or that or this problem or that, whatever. And the problem isn't with, I mean, it is a problem with all that stuff, but the primary problem isn't with all of that stuff. The primary problem is right here. Because the entertaining of those lusts are us trying to feed some kind of need that exists in our life that we are not feeding elsewhere in a healthy way. And so we, people get into this, entertaining these kinds of lusts because they're looking for significance, they're looking for power, they're looking for value, they're looking for escape from their life, they are looking for 
physical gratification. And instead of finding that, those things in the places that God designed for us to find them, we are trying to find them in that place, and that place will not actually satisfy them. And so if you find yourself hungering for these kinds of things, it is because you are not feeding the need that is driving that in the way that is healthy. But if you're feeding your need for significance in Christ, if you're feeding your need for control and allowing the Spirit to control you in your life, if you're filling those needs by abiding in Christ, then you'll find you're already full. And when the temptation comes up, you don't want to partake. Okay? This is something, this is a big, big, big issue. It's a big issue with us. And it often feels like a private, secret, nobody sees it issue. But listen, even if you get away with it, even if nobody ever sees or knows, he knows and he sees it. And that's not meant to shame you. That's meant for you to realize, that's meant for you to realize that if you want to be in fellowship with God, you need to not allow these types of things to come between you and him. Jesus says this, all right? Um, let's keep reading. He gives them a fairly ludicrous solution. <laughs> all right? and, and you should know, before we start reading, uh, Jesus is like the master of ludicrous scenarios. It's called hyperbole. It's a, a technique that he uses. He gives an extreme ridiculous example. I always like the example of a camel going through the eye of a needle, all right? Obviously, it's not possible. That's the whole point. He's trying to get a, a, a big picture apart. So um, first of all, he's not literally telling you to do what we're about to do. Because I don't want you to he- I don't want you to read this and then just you know shut your brain off as you think about how you're going to pull this off. Okay, um, verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. All right. I hope I don't have to tell you, don't pluck out your eye. Okay, <laughs> don't cut off your hand. That's not what he's saying, all right? And, it, you know, it's not even reasonable if it's what he were saying because even if they plucked out one eye, they would still have another eye, you know? So, I, you know, I, I, I mean, I don't know. First of all, if you're just lusting with one eye, I don't even know how that works, okay? So I'm not, I don't know how that actually works. And, and if he's being literal about this, none of us would have any hands, <laughs> okay? And it wouldn't matter much, though, because we couldn't see each other. You know, so he's not being he's not being literal about this. What does it mean? And remember, salvation is not an issue. He's not saying that if we if we fall into the stuff that that we lose our salvation, we lose fellowship with him. They have to keep the law. And so it's very important for them to live this stuff out in that way. But um, what does it actually mean? What is he saying? It means that you need to take the source of that temptation and you need to remove it. Now. There, there are a couple different level levels to this. I, I think there's, a, um, there's an external level to this, that there may actually be things in your life that are bringing that temptation to you. And if there are things in your life that are bringing that temptation to you, then you need to remove those things, no matter what the cost of removing those things is. 
Jesus, that's what Jesus is trying to say. He's saying, if you need to take an extreme measure, so extreme as to pluck out your eye or cut off your hand, if you need to take an extreme measure, it is better for you to do that and make that sacrifice than it is for you to continue in the sin. And so that may mean extreme things, and, and it could be a lot of different things. I remember there was a movie that came out, it's probably 10 or, 10 or 15 years ago now, it's a Christian movie called Fireproof. Um, some of you may know that movie if you've been around Christian circles. If you haven't been around Christian circles, you've probably never heard of it. Um, but it did star Kirk Cameron, which was a big deal for us Christians in our movies because we finally had like a legitimate star in one of them. Um, but uh, he was married and he and his wife were having problems and they were getting to the brink of divorce. And um, he goes through this whole process of learning and growing. Spoiler alert, they work it out. Uh, as you would expect. But one of the problems he had was with looking at images on the computer, all right? And so he had to work through, uh, he worked through the internal stuff first, but eventually it culminates with him taking the computer out of the house into the backyard and just beating it with a baseball bat, <laughs> okay? That was him. And I remember as a, as a teenager in the 90s during the purity culture in conservative Christian circles, for us it was breaking CDs and burning books and promise rings and you name it. Like we had all the things that we did, but there were, there were external things where we said, this is the problem that's bringing this thing in and so I'm going to get rid of this thing so that it doesn't come in. And so for us, it, we are so inundated with, with things it's difficult to do. But if you find yourself tending towards these kinds of lusts, then there are things that need to change. Lots of things you can do, and I can't prescribe that for you because you know yourself and you know the situation that you're in, getting rid of the computer, putting it out in a public place where everybody sees it, uh, setting timers or limits or other things on your phone or whatever it may be, um, standards but removing those things. Maybe it's a relationship that's causing you to lust. Somebody that you know that you're having thoughts about or whatever, and maybe that relationship needs to change or who you're with around them needs to change. You've got to put parameters in thing, and things in place. And whatever it takes to do that, do it because it is better for you to make that sacrifice and to be pure in this area than it is for your relationship with God to be disconnected or your relationship with the people that you love to be disconnected. And make no mistake about it, even if you think that those things are private, they affect your relationships with the people that you love the most. It can't be avoided. So whatever cost you have to pay, do it. But I think the deeper thing, the deeper thing than that, and that can be a stopgap measure and those things are helpful and necessary. But I think the deeper thing is identifying what the underlying root of your entertaining that temptation is coming from and amputating that, getting rid of that. You know, in that movie, Fireproof, the computer was the door, but it's not what brought him to the doorstep. You have, and he fixed, and if you watch the movie, you see that he worked on what brought him to the doorstep, and it was once that, then he was able to get rid of the thing. So you may want to ask the question, what's bringing me to the door? What's bringing me to the door and causing me to knock? It might be feelings of frustration, dissatisfaction, insignificance, powerlessness, fear. be a lot of things. What Jesus wanted them to do with this issue 
with the issue, issue of hating someone, murder. He wanted them to understand that what God was looking for them for from them was not just cold adherence to some rules. Not looking for what is the minimum standard and trying to stay above it. But by looking higher than that. And saying that I'm I'm not just going to live my life to the minimum standard. I want to take my life with the power and leadership of the Spirit to the highest levels of righteousness I can achieve. And that happens right here. That it begins in my heart and then it affects all of my behaviors. And so today, as we listen to what Jesus says, we all need to look at ourselves and say, how am I living and what is my goal? Is my goal just to know what the rules are so I can, can I abide by them? Or is my goal to know Christ so I can abide in him? That I want to know him and I want to abide in him. And I want to take it, I want to fill in all of these cracks in these rules. And I want to become the person who he's designed me to be. And I want to build my life on solid ground. The ground of Christ. The foundation of Jesus. And so we all have to ask that question. Now, this week, when you get together in group, you're going to talk more about this. And by the way, for those of you that are in groups that are, that are mixed between with men and women, I'm recommending to the, to the group leaders that you split up for the last couple questions, split up the men and the women uh, for those questions. A couple, a couple of reasons, and the, the group leaders can explain that to you. But um, when you get together in groups, you're going to talk about um, where these things come from. And how to, how to get them right and what's going on in your own life. So I want you to be thinking about this. And I want to challenge you, particularly on the second issue that we talked about today. The first one's a little easier to talk about, okay? second one's harder to talk about. And I want to challenge you to be honest about it. Because those things that you, that you think are happening in secret in the private of your own thoughts, I'm not going to be able to deal with them until it gets out in some, some way. And so whether it's one person that you trust or whatever it may be, Share that struggle that you're having and let them help you get to the bottom of it and work on it. This is, these are areas where we have to be really honest with ourselves because nobody else is going to do it for us. We have to be honest with ourselves. And so um, the Spirit is going to lead each of us into what it means for our heart to be transformed to match this. And so what we're going to do now is we're going to pray and then we're going to sing a song. And during that time, I just want to encourage you to use it. Use it as time to connect with God, to confess sin to God, to ask him to highlight in case you're not sure what it means for you yet. Ask him to show you in the spirit what this all means for you and make a commitment to walk with him in faithfulness as we do that together. All right, let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your love, the grace that uh, completely undeserved. We know that we can't be right enough. We can't be holy enough. We can't keep the rules well enough, deeply enough to earn your love and righteousness. And so we depend solely on the righteousness of Christ for our salvation. And uh, so many of us in here have made the decision uh, to follow, have made the decision to believe the gospel, to believe the salvation of Jesus, to believe the offer made to us on the cross. And uh, we thank you for that salvation, giving us what we couldn't earn. There may be someone here who's never made that decision before. They've been trying their whole life to be good enough. Or maybe they haven't been trying to be good enough. And so they live in shame and fear and guilt. And God, right now, 
confirm to them that all they have to do is believe. Believe and trust you for salvation. That's it. And God, as we walk forward in the relationship that we have with you, we want to be as close to you as we can possibly be. We want to be close to each other as we can possibly be. We want to be the people that you created us to be, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds from the inside out. And we need you to lead us in that. We need, to, we need you to lead us into love for our brothers and sisters. Show us right now anywhere where we have been devaluing, mistreating, looking at someone as anything other than what you look at them as. Help us to see it. And then in the power of your spirit, show us what to do about it, how to reconcile, how to make it right. Whether it's us that has a problem with someone else, whether it's someone else that we know has a problem with us. Show us how to do it and and give us the boldness to do it now. God, anywhere we... Anywhere where lust has been coming to us and we've been entertaining the thought, we've been thinking, we've been feeling, maybe even acting. God, I ask that you would show us right now. I ask that you would show for for anybody dealing with that, so many messages in front of us, that you would show where it's coming from why it's taking hold and taking root, what need it's, it's attempting to fill, and how you want to fill that. It's such a difficult thing for us to deal with, God, but it is so important to our relationship with you and our relationship with each other. And so I ask God that you show us where those issues are and that you draw us into holiness into your design and your desire for us. Give us the courage to be honest, to discuss these things with each other so that together we can walk in faithfulness to you. We want our life to be built on solid ground, a firm foundation, so that when the wind and the waves come, our house doesn't fall, it stands as we walk in faithfulness with you. You are good and you are loving and you are kind and you are gracious. And we want to live in that every day, walk in it every day. So continue to help us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.